Good morning. Find yourself at any point in the present or near distant past, if you will, in conflict with somebody else? Have you ever wrestled biblically with how to go about addressing the whole matter of conflicted relationships? Now, these are some of the questions I want to wrestle with you this morning as we are turning in our Bibles now to James chapter 4, continuing on in the series we began uh, slightly after Easter. And we're in verse 11 and verse 12, and truly, if we're going to understand the conflictedness of relationships, we've got to backpedal a couple of weeks, don't we? We've got to remind ourselves that what we find in this world is that there's a conflict between what we have now described as the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. We were told in James chapter 3 and verse 13 that the wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But there's a wisdom from above that is fully personalized when the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, entered to this world to die for your sins and for mine, to reconcile the conflictedness between us and our holy God, us and others. Now what James did, didn't he, in light of this tension between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, is to get personal and to get practical in chapter 4, verse 1. Because he posed a question that last week we had to address. He asked this question of believers, not unbelievers. He asked this question of Jewish believers, in particular when he said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? Among you. Now, secular society desires something better than this from believers. And yet he's dealing with the realities of Christians in a fallen world where we have still not escaped our sinful nature. So, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He asks. And then he added this statement Is it not this? that your passions, literally from the Greek, your hedonisms, wanting what you do not have, not wanting what you do have, that your hedonisms are at war within you. And he's talking to believers at this point as he talks about the hedonism of the heart. Well, now in today's study he is going to look at one particular example of this conflictedness. He's going to look at the conversations that you and I find ourselves in, in this fallen world. In particular, believer talking to or about fellow believer. It might have startled some people to read this until they began to apply it personally. But now in verse 11 and in verse 12, as we segue into today's verses, we find these words. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother 
speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, these are critical questions that you and I have got to be able to address. So why don't you join with me? We're going to take an inventory of our conversational relationships. Look at the various ways in which we found ourselves in conflicted situations and ask, and what does God's word have to say about conflict resolution in light of all this? As we now look to our Lord, you see, in prayer. Now, our Father, we don't want to take your word out of context, and we don't want to take others' words out of context. We've got to be able to stay true to who you are and to your intent. We believe as we worship now through your word that what you have said is filled with 100% accuracy and integrity. That there is authority found in your word, not in ours. And what we have to do now is to take the authority of your word and create application from your word for our lives. So, Father, in this conflict of authority between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, ultimately a conflict of authority, what we're asking is that you shed light on the conflicts that we find ourselves in so that we're better equipped as a result to minister where the true issues need to be resolved. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the conflict, of course, between the north and the south But not only between the north and the south, but people in the north against people of the north and people of the south against people of the south because we live in a fallen world. General Robert E. Lee was a commander in the south, a born-again Christian. And he was asked what he thought of a fellow officer in the Confederate Army. It was an officer who was trying to make his way up the ranks and was repeatedly speaking against Robert E. Lee. Lee said, I view him as an outstanding soldier. Now the person who asked the question seemed perplexed. But General, I guess you don't know what he's been saying about you. Lee smiled and said, oh, I know what he's been saying about me. Then how can you view him that way? Sir, I was asked my opinion of him, not his opinion of me. And that sets the stage. 
We live in conflictedness. And there are tensions that you and I are going to have to navigate day in, day out in the relationships that God places us in. We're going to be wise if we, in the midst of today's study, stay close to the cross and how Jesus Christ himself handled the verbal conflictedness that he found himself in. Not only the physical pain, but also the conversational pain of all that was, he was enduring around him. Now, what I see here in verse 11 and verse 12 as we continue our expositions are two significant warnings that God has delivered to us through the writings of James to help us, to equip us to be better prepared in handling proactively as well as reactively the conflicted relationships, particularly verbally, that we find ourselves in. Because like General Lee, what we find ourselves in is that people are attempting to position themselves so that they are able to get the upper hand in what is said and done. Here's the first warning, and it flows out of verse 11. And we're going to pen it like this, number one, that we must not verbally position ourselves against the believer and the law. And you're going to see what we mean by this as we dig in. Notice that he begins with an absolute negative. It is not merely an opinion. This is a command. Do not speak evil. And all of a sudden, you and I are taken aback because he is addressing not unbelievers at this point. He's addressing believers. And he's not speaking of believers in their view of unbelievers or unbelievers in their view of believers. He is... He is right on target here with the conflictedness that was taking place in that day and age. Do not speak evil against one another. Another of the one another statements of the Bible. Brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's a lot there, isn't there, in one verse. But I want to see a pattern. I want you to see the pattern with me. There are a number of words that are repeated. The word speak would be one example. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law, and so on. Another word, brothers, again and again and again. Still another word that will be repeated multiple times? Judges. Speaks, brothers, judges. Now, he brings this together, condenses it, and forces you and me to examine, to take a spiritual inventory of all of our various conversations. Now, take into account the people that are really trying your spirit right now in your life, or have through the course of your days. You have found this one conversational dilemma after another. And it's easier to keep that person conversational distance, to speak against rather than to speak to. Notice the wording here. He utilizes the word against. 
In other words, there seems to be some kind of oppositional force that is slowly moving towards the surface here because the people are borrowing attitudes from below rather than God's will from above. Do not speak evil, he says, against one another, brothers. And this, you see, is a commend. Now, when you and I look at that, what we've got to bear in mind at this point then is that we're going to be tested. And we're going to be tested in the whole realm of not only what we know, but what we don't know. F.B. Meyer was a very gifted pastor of a prior era, ministered in England. I've appreciated his writings. And he said that, I believe, once when he was examining the various relationships that he saw, that there are at least three things we do not know. First, if we think we see someone else in sin, we do not know how hard he or she has tried not to sin. Second, if we think we see someone in sin, a fellow brother, sister, we do not know the power of forces that have been working against him or her. Third, We don't know what we would have done in the same circumstances. It gives us pause, is what he's saying here. So now you pause before you speak, and you take spiritual inventory. And remember, he has challenged you, and he's challenged me in his writings thus far, that when it comes to this whole matter conversationally, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. One quick, followed by two slows, slow to speak, slow to anger. And this is a course in anger management. But now he groups together these various words, speak, brothers, judge. And forces you and me to go back to that question he posed in verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your hedonisms, literally hedonisms of the heart, are at war, not merely around you, but within you? Now, when we get to this point then, what we understand is that To do so, to give in to this, is first of all, to do so is to judge the believer. And the question is, what right do I have truly to judge the believer? Jesus has addressed this issue in James, or rather in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too shall be judged. And you say, but how does this relate to, say, the judicial system of today? What we've got to do is to realize that the word judge throughout the Bible has got to be understood in its context. Take a text out of a context, and all you're left with is a con. Sometimes the word to judge can mean simply to discern. Other times the word has to do with to judge judicially. Which means then, you've got to ask yourself, have I been appointed as a judge or have I not? 
In other words, in this matter of the conflict, conversational conflict, am I dealing with this relationally or am I dealing with this judicially? And if I'm dealing with it judicially, who gave me the right to be the judge? The context has got to determine the precise shade of the meaning here. And what Jesus was saying in this case was, do not be judgmental. Do not bring a critical spirit into the family of faith. The same verb is used twice with identical meaning in Romans 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then, the problem is this. It's that Christians' responsibility to discern, once given to us, can readily warp into justifying a harping, critical spirit. Pause. Do you find yourself, even among the family members of faith, bringing that kind of spirit into the fellowship? That was the kind of spirit, in fact, that was being engineered from the wisdom from below by the evil one in the Garden of Eden. And what we've got to bear in mind is that God desires reconciliation. Now, notice here, he says, to do so is to judge the believer. And when we think about that, our minds go back to a, an example that I had given sometime a few years ago based upon a conversation of filled with tension between E. Stanley Jones and someone else in India. Seems as though years had gone by, they'd had a quality relationship, but the man turned on Jones, attacked him in the public press. The biographer to E. Stanley Jones tells us that Jones sat down and wrote a letter of reply of a few sentences. The kind of reply in which you don't give your opponent a leg to stand on, but you just wipe him off the face of the earth. As he put it, quote, the kind of reply you're proud of the first five minutes, the second five minutes you're not so certain, and the third five minutes you know you're wrong. But before he mailed this letter, he sent this reply to the people who he was ministering with to get their opinion of it. And they sent it back with three succinct words written in the margin not sufficiently Christ-centered. As Jones read those words, he tells the biographer he was devastated. He knew that he was winning the argument but losing the men. And he knew immediately that the Christian is not here to win arguments but to win people. So he tore up the letter and said, Lord, you'll have to take care of my reputation. A few weeks later, 
he received a letter of apology from the man who had turned on him and was used by Jones to lead this man then to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The danger sometimes is that we speak without hard facts and there can be a creative disguise of motives such as phrases, now stop me if I'm wrong, but... Perhaps I should not say this about him or her, but now the subtle danger in that phrasing takes us then to the second of the observations. To do so is to judge the believer, but furthermore, to do so is to judge the law. Read it again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against, that word against keeps appearing. A brother or judges, Greek word krine, his brother speaks evil against the law. Now what James is doing is that he's beginning to elevate the issues. You thought it was simply relational conflict between you and a fellow believer. But now he is beginning to lift this up and saying this is also conflict between you and the moral law that God has given us. You speak evil against the law and judge the law, he is in essence saying here. Now what fascinates me is that James is writing to Jewish believers. And they would have known that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, that great chapter that spells out the code of ethics for believers... Moses had penned in verse 16, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Now, if you look very carefully at what's occurring here at this point, then, is that when we begin not only to speak against a brother or sister, but start to judge, not only privately but publicly, that brother or that sister, we are in essence beginning to judge the law. In other words, we are substituting our opinion for God's law and saying that my opinion here, the wisdom from below, carries greater weight than the moral law that has been given from above. So what I'm doing now is subtly challenging the law that God himself has established for me And for you, substituting opinion for moral law that God has again and again spoken of in the book of James. Now, what I want to do at this point, then, is to make absolutely certain that I'm following God's code of ethics and not substituting my code of ethics for God's code of ethics and to be able to value who God is and what God has done, and why God's moral law is not simply meant to be restrictive. It really is meant to be protective. Tim Munyon, who had been a free church pastor out west, when he was living in Florida, was recalling some of his experiences when putting himself through school. He was working at a nationally known inn 
located directly on the white sands of the Gulf of Mexico. He describes his friends who worked cleaning rooms there. They spent their work breaks running barefoot in the sand. Now the problem was the inn required all of us as employees to wear shoes at all times while working. Simple an illustration here. He said, I noticed the employees responded in one of two ways. The majority thought the rule restricted their freedom. Has God's law, God's law ever made you feel that way? The rooms had shade carpeting, delightful to bare toes, just a few steps away lay the beach. To them, the rule to wear shoes was nothing more than employer harassment. But a minority of the employees looked at the rule differently. Sometimes late-night parties would produce small pieces of broken glass. Occasionally, a stick pin would be found hidden in the shag piles, you see. This minority saw the rule as protection, not restriction. Bring it home. When you're looking at the Garden of Eden scenario, what the evil one, utilizing wisdom from below, is attempting to do at this point is to take God's law and make it appear to Eve as though this is a matter of restriction. God had given them all the fruit, and yet he had narrowed the focus upon that one that they could not have, that tree. What God has done, though, with his law is produce protection. And that there is protection in his gracious restriction. Now, when you and I begin to think this way, that there's tremendous liberty found in understanding how God's moral law relates to the believer, as well as confronts the unbeliever with the need for salvation. We've got a better understanding of this law of liberty then that James himself had written about in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And he's drawing from Leviticus 19, the code of ethics that God has established for you and for me. So now I look very carefully at the, at the contour of my relationships. And you and I examine carefully the words that have been used in relationship to fellow believers, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you begin to ask yourself, to what degree was I positioning myself against a fellow believer without knowing the context And to what degree, then, as a result, I've positioned myself to judge the law and substituted my personal opinion for God's sovereign law itself? Now, these are tough questions. But believers don't shy away from the tough questions of life because we want God's will, God's way, not God's will, our way. When we begin to grapple with these things, we can see the tensions here between the above and the below, the conflictedness as a result, and how it makes itself apparent in the way in which words are expressed or not expressed. 
once we've seized verse 11 and maxed the thoughts that are here, but if you judge the law, you are a, not a doer of the law, but a judge. In essence, a substitution has occurred where not only am I replacing God's law with my opinion, I am in essence replacing God as sovereign judge with myself. And there is a repositioning that's occurring even in the midst of personal conflicts. I've got to see what I'm really dealing with here is much bigger than conversational conflict. Once we've grasped this, we're ready for verse 12. Verse 12 informs you and informs me there is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. He who is able to save and to destroy. And then the question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now notice that it says there is only one lawgiver and judge. My mind goes back to the one who did not like that degree of exclusivity, who in Isaiah chapter 14, five times will use an I will statement to try to reposition himself above God. You said in your heart, our sovereign God says, with regard to the evil one, Satan. You said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will make myself like the most high. And then used that same argument then to tempt Eve. You will be like God. What he was doing at that point was stripping away exclusivity that God is God alone. And now giving her the opportunity to start to think pluralistically that maybe Maybe there are alternatives here that have got to be embraced. Now, when you and I in this fallen world see the conflict between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above that results in the conflicts that James addresses and poses the question of in James 4, verse 1, why all these quarrels? And then gets very specific with regard to the way in which people speak to one another. We've got to bore in on the exclusivity of our sovereign God, the three-in-one There is only one lawgiver and judge. Now, what has he done? He started with the conflict. He then spoke of the fact that people are judging one another, raised it to the next level, and said, you are, in essence, then judging the law itself, substituting your opinion for God's law. But now it raises it to the highest level and says, in essence, what you are substituting is not only your opinion, For God's law, you are substituting yourself in place of God when you judge. Re-examine all the conversations you have in the midst of the conflicts you experience and ask yourself, has there been a subtle substitution that has occurred in the midst of all this where I've replaced God with self when I've sought my will rather than God's? And instead of addressing the issue relationally, I have attempted to address the issue judicially and put myself as judge 
of all these relationships. Now, we keep examining. We keep looking. And we remind ourselves, for example, that Abram himself understood the exclusivity of God when he looked at the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, issue and then as he was trying and pleading with God, interceding for what was there, would then pose this question in Genesis 18, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And here's the thing. If I'm operating with the wisdom from below, I will judge unjustly. I'm a sinful man. I need one who judges justly in the midst of the conversational conflicts of life. Ponder the ultimate conflict, the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter delivers the goods when he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his what mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, listen, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the wisdom from below allows for me, then, the opportunity to view myself as judge, but then I end up judging unjustly instead of entrusting my conversations and my relationships to the sovereign, holy, righteous God. And I've got the example of the second member of the Trinity on the cross who, in the midst of all the conflicts that he himself has experienced, was able to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Now I have gone to the cross to thoroughly examine what it is that James wants me to comprehend here at this point. God maintains exclusivity. Now then, out of that exclusivity, I want you to see how practically it works itself out. What that means, first of all, is that he alone is able to save There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save. Stop right there. As the sole lawgiver, he is able to save. And as the sole judge, he is able to save. Which means then that I do not have the right of self-elevation, the way in which Satan attempted to replace God with self, but rather to recognize the aloneness here There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save. So if I believe there is only one means of salvation, I have to believe there is only one lawgiver who is part of that only means of salvation. Ponder this. It was August 16th. And you say, but today is August 16th. Well, it was August 16th, 1987. Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. 155 people were killed, and one survived. A four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, her name was Cecilia. Now, the news accounts 
say, when rescuers found Cecilia, they didn't believe that she had been on the plane. They first assumed Cecilia had been a passenger in one of the cars on the highway on which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger registered for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. But now the rest of the story. Cecilia survived because as the plane was falling, her mother, Judge Paula Shikan, unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia, then would not let her go. You see both the judicial and the relational tied together, and somebody was saved. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the judicial and the relational come together so that you and I might be saved. Judicial, my God, not my Father. My God, not typical of Jesus, swerting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The judicial word from the cross. Father, not God, Father, though he is God, into thy hands I commit my spirit. At that point, we have both judicial and relational coming together where the sinless one becomes the substitute for the sinful ones, you and me. Judicial, yet relational. Justice as well as grace. And now you and I examine this very carefully, and we realize that he alone is able to save because he only is the lawgiver and the judge. But not only is he alone able to save, but furthermore, he alone is able to destroy. Who is able to save and to destroy In other words, at that ultimate judgment for the unbeliever, this is what is spoken of here. We're in Matthew chapter 10, and in verse 28, you and I are going to find Jesus coupling together grace as well as justice when he then produces these words, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And what Jesus was doing at that point, and as James would underline for you and for me, is that he was taking the believers back once again to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where in verse 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. Exclusivity, I kill and I make alive. That has to do with grace and justice, heaven and hell. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, which feeds into what Jesus was saying about the security of the believer. You are safe in his hands. Now you pull all that together, and you see the tremendous balance here 
when you embrace the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Lord, even in the midst of the conflict of the relationships you might find yourself in, because Jesus himself was able to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And then he poses, James does, this question for you and for me. In light of all this, as you now ponder the tensions of the wisdom from below versus the wisdom from above, in light of all this, but who are you? He's saying to Highlander. Really no, Highlander, you're a sinful man. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You don't have a judicial role. This is relational. Not judicial. Leave that to the court of heaven above. In history, when Sir Walter Raleigh was imprisoned in the Tower of London, he decided that while he had to while away the hours, he'd write a history of the world. Imagine that. We had covered about 200 pages, a historian tells us, when one morning he was interrupted by noise in the prison courtyard. Two prisoners who were working there became involved in an incredible argument. Blows were struck. Inmates began to take sides. Encouragement was being shouted out until the gods tore the men apart from one another just in time. Raleigh then, we were told, went to his desk and threw away his history, noting that he couldn't even decide who was right and who was wrong, even though it happened right under his own eyes. He couldn't judge. You tie all that together then, and you make it personal. You can't substitute your opinion for God's law, and we can't substitute ourselves for the one who is truly judge. We go to the cross and see how resolution is established and accomplished there. I guess you don't know what he's been saying about you. The soldier said to General Lee. Oh, I know, answered Lee. But I was asked my opinion of him, not his opinion of me. Let's stand together. This is so relevant, Father, because this is a culture of conflict that we find ourselves in Conflict globally, conflict nationally, and in our own microcosm, conflict personally. So you address the war within and show that there's a conflict between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, but the wisdom from above is such that he went to Bethlehem to die on Calvary so that he could be the substitute for us and us not the substitute for him. So, Father, from this point on, when we find ourselves in conflicting situations, verbally, relationally, help us to take a step back, look carefully at the cross, at the second member of the Trinity who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and then seek reconciliation based upon your word, not our will. And for this, we'll give you all the praise.
in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.